the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And in addition to my JD, I'm also a master of a couple of areas of law. That is to say, I'm both a master of the laws of taxation and a master of the laws of intellectual property. Now, because of my education and my training and my experiences and my life's observation, and most importantly, my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. I also practice some of the related fields in my overall consumer and small business financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, wills and and the like, and also real estate and, of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my primary reference point, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial and community and small business aspects of finance. I spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I grew up as a military brat, I really look forward to having the opportunity to help or in any way I can, uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic economic based system, especially after these individuals uh, separate from the service. And as I've shared with you before, I consider myself to be truly blessed to have been able to spend a lot of time with my grandmothers on both sides of my families at different times of my my childhood and my young womanhood. Uh, and it is out of the great love and respect that I have for these women who I believe survived the great uh, four great economic challenges of the last century. That is to say, they not only survived, but thrived in the Great Depression, the privations of World War II, and the systemic racism and misogyny that continues through and through our society today. And because these women loved me and helped raise me and shared with me great stories of inspiration about their grandparents who loved and raised them and the 
post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South. Again, it is out of my great love and affection for these women who are always with me in in spirit, along with my dad, urging me on to be the best person I can be and give back to my community. As such, when the situation is right and it's ethical and legal, I relish the opportunity to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors and disabled folks who find themselves the targets of, and unfortunately more and more, the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of financial elder abuse and senior adult abuse that's running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and more and more probably than not these days, the lack thereof and your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect and or reclaim or rehabilitate your or your families or your small businesses, financial health, wealth and money related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that is tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an overall outline of some of the key issues you may need that may help you seek out and the quality define the qualified professional help I believe you need if you have a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets and or your debt. And I keep saying this because it is my firmly held belief that when laypersons attempt to represent themselves in a legal matter, it's just like taking a butter knife to a gunfight. And that's because all of your adversaries including your creditors in a bankruptcy case, will be represented by competent counsel with their real legal weapons all arrayed against you. That means that if you're lucky and you're able to sneak up on one of your adversaries and scratch her on the arm and poke her in the eye with your butter knife, it's going to be you more than likely that's going to be dead on the rival. That is to say, your valid claims against your adversary or your valid defenses shielding you from your adversary will likely see the promised land way before you do. And I keep referring to one of my childhood heroes and favorite movies, Shane. You you have to remember, even though Shane took a real weapon to his shootout with Jack Wilson and the Riker brothers, and even though he ultimately bested them in that gunfight, he was still wounded. And you could tell that as he rode off into the majestic Wyoming mountains, ignoring little Joey's pleas to stay. So I just want to put this out there. Just think what would have happened to Shane if instead of a real weapon, he had taken a butter knife to that gunfight. So today we'll continue the discussion we started a few weeks ago on Bankruptcy 101 by reiterating what bankruptcy does and why it's so important. Again, 
It's a legal procedure that's found in the United States Constitution, and it has been implemented by Congress and can be used by individuals, families, large and small businesses, and the governmental units of states with the consent of the state, but not the state themselves, when these individuals or entities become insolvent. That is to say, these real or artificial persons owe more money than the value of all of their their assets and or they are unable to repay their debts as they come due, even if they're solvent on paper. Bankruptcy slows down the collection process, doesn't eliminate it. It slows it down initially, and it may allow a debtor to be released from all of their legal duty to repay all or part of their debt, depending on the facts and circumstances of their individual cases. And why is it important? It's critical to a properly functioning capitalistic market-based economy such as ours because it acts as a safety valve to give entrepreneurs and individuals and families the freedom to undertake economic and financial risk associated with starting businesses or starting families. You keep in the back of your mind, if I run into a situation that's not my fault, that that is to say, I didn't manipulate or set up my creditors, say there's a shift in the marketplace or there's a financial downturn. And this, these shifts in the marketplace cause individuals or families not to be able to pay their debts as they come due. This constitutionally based legal procedure may give the honest owners of these financially distressed businesses and the honest members of these financially distressed families a chance to start afresh without the burden of overwhelming debt that tends to destroy the quality of life for individuals and families and causes businesses to have to shut down. The bankruptcy process also gives the debtors creditors the assurance that they will be given a fair share of the value of the debtors exempted asset even if that fair share sometimes means that the creditor depending on their classification will receive nothing. However, as we discussed the last time, bankruptcy is just not for everyone, especially where the debtor in question has the wrong set of uh, facts and circumstances that can be proven by her adversary that are related to how she incurred one or more of her debt obligations in the first instance. As such, she may find herself a defendant in a lawsuit filed by one or more of her creditors pursuant to one or more of the various causes of action that are found at Section 523 of the Bankruptcy Code. And if proven by the creditor, will make that debt undischargeable forever. Again, while there's no single public policy rationale for the inclusion of each type of debt accepted from discharge, where a bankruptcy court makes the determination that non-dischargeability is justified, the debtor will remain obligated to repay that jet, the debt so adjudicated for two broad public policy rationales. One is the worthiness of the creditor to be repaid under the circumstances. And the second is the misconduct of the debtor in obtaining the creditor's assets or for causing the quantum of damages incurred by the creditor due to the debtor's unjustified and unjustifiable conduct. 
The last time we looked at one of the classifications of the bad acts of a debtor, that is to say the debtor's willful and malicious act caused injury to another person and or her property under Section 523A6 of the Bankruptcy Code. Today, we'll take a look at an example of non-dischargeability that is related to the purported worthiness of the creditor to be paid back, notwithstanding the real and substantial burden to the debtor and her family that is all over the news today. What I classify is the infamous requirement to pay back your student loan debt pursuant to Section 523A8 of the Bankruptcy Code. But first, we're going to take a short break, and I'll see you on the other side. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion on today's topic, Bankruptcy 101. Now, before the break, I promised that you we'd take a look at an example of the non-dischargeability that is related to the purported worthiness of the creditor to be paid back, notwithstanding the real and substantial burden to the debtor and her family. That's all over the news today. What I classify as the infamous requirement to pay back your student loan debt pursuant to Section 523A8 of the Bankruptcy Code. Now, because this topic is so fulsome, let's jump right in. However, because I always want to know the what and why as well as the how of public policy development. Let's begin with a little history lesson on the why and the how our government got involved in participating in the funding and the repayment of loans related to the education of American citizens and how these policy changes have tracked over time with the bankruptcy code. Now, according to the congressional record, the National Defense Education Act, the NDEA, was passed in 1958 in response to the Soviet Union's acceleration of their space program, which launched the satellite Sputnik. That law, the NDEA, provided federal funding to, and I quote, ensure trained manpower of sufficient quality and quantity to meet the national defense needs of the United States, end of quote. In addition to fellowships, grants, and loans to students, the legislation bolstered education in the areas of science and mathematics, STEM, and modern foreign languages so we could spy on people. These are my comments. (laughs) The House report recommending passage of the bill stated, and I quote, it is no exaggeration to say that America's progress in many fields of endeavor in years ahead, in fact, and very sur- the very survival of our free country may depend in large part upon the education we provide our young people now, end of quote. The NDEA authorized the appropriation of more than $1 billion. One, these are $1 billion in 19... 19- 
$58. So that's a lot of money over the next several years to achieve its goals, making it the first example of a comprehensive federal education piece of legislation and signaling the expansion of the role of the federal government in our education system. And you can get more information by going to www.history.house.gov forward slash house records and, and read all about this, the NDEA. Now, then wanting to expand the access to quality education to millions of Americans without necessarily having to fund it themselves or itself, according to Bloomberg Law's bankruptcy treatise, in its historical perspective of the development of the bankruptcy code section, it states that the federal government first began guaranteeing low interest educational loans as part of the Higher Education Act of 1965 when Lyndon Baines Johnson was in the White House. They did so in order to meet the challenge of keeping the college door open to all students of ability. Now, neither the Bankruptcy Act of 1898 nor the statutes governing loan programs prohibited or limited the discharge of these kinds of student loan debts in bankruptcy. However, stories quickly arose regarding students who completed their education, often at a professional level, doctors and lawyers and the like, and then walked away from their loan obligations shortly before beginning lucrative jobs. These facts and these stories were generally anecdotal and and isolated, however, that that didn't make them any less compelling for people in Congress or lobbyists from sharing them. And as a result, the first response from the Commission on Bankruptcy Laws of the United States, which had been created in 1970 to study the needed changes to the bankruptcy code, that commission noted that such discharges, that is to say, um, these loans that were underwritten by the government, posed a threat to the continuation of educational programs. And they recommended, the commission recommended limiting the dischargeability of student loans. And they said, basically, and I quote, the commission recommends that in absence of hardship, educational loans be dischargeable unless the first payment fall more than fell more than five years prior to the petition. So let me just sort that out. You could still get your loan discharged if you had been make if it would the first payment was due more than five years before the petition. Those were the recommendations and the other recommendations is notwithstanding that five year uh, limitation period that if you could prove a hardship. Okay, then three years after that commission report, the Senate committee recommended an absolute non-dischargeability of educational loans during the first uh, five years. They didn't even want to accept a hardship. But uh, get the picture here. If you paid or you were in forbearance for at least five years and then you filed for bankruptcy, your student loans were discharged under both of these 
iterations. During the debates leading up to the 1978 code, a House report noted that the evidence supporting non-dischargeability of student loans were exaggerated and anecdotal. So I'm, I'm, I'm stressing that. This was like a straw person argument. You know, maybe 1% of the folks who were getting these loans were doing these things. But the vast majority of people were paying back these loans, and these loans were not that high back in, back in the day. People could handle them. But because of this um, um, falsehoods, this, this straw, these straw man arguments, people in Congress got all whipped up. Okay? And so... Basically, as originally enacted, Section 528A8 prohibited the discharge of any debt to a governmental unit or a nonprofit institution of higher education for an educational loan. So first, it was just money borrowed from the government or to a nonprofit. Over the course of the years, it's been expanded to for-profit entities, even, you know, shyster uh, for-profit entities that take money and don't give a good education or take money and, and go, run away with the money. So, and I wonder why that is. I wonder how that is. Do Might it have anything to do with the lobbying industry of the financial services industry that you know, assists in quotation marks our Congress in developing the laws and the amendments to the bankruptcy code. I just wonder, I'm just wondering out loud. Okay, so Section 523A8 has been amended several times since its original enactment, and each amendment has further restricted the dischargeability of student loans. The First Amendment came in 1979. It made two changes to the, that particular section of the code. It eliminated the unequal treatment uh, uh, that the section originally gave. It distinguished for-profit from non-profit education. So it eliminated that, meaning that for-profit in, in 1979, for-profits were on the same level as non-profits. And then it excluded deferment periods from the calculation of that five-year period that I talked about. So it, at one time, if you were in deferment, that was included in the five years. But now, if you, but in this 1979 version, any time that you were in deferment, you didn't get credit for that. So this is just to show how over time... Uh, and also what happened in 1990 was you had if you um, got a scholarship or a stipend and filed for bankruptcy because you couldn't pay that non-scholarship or non-stipend portion, you had to pay that back. So, you know, I just don't think Congress was coming up with these these ideas on their own. So throughout this long process, despite the continued lack of imperiled support for these discharge exceptions, Congress has demonstrated a consistent desire to crack down on debtors seeking to discharge student loan debt in order to protect, and I quote in quotation marks, the integrity of the process. So I'm going to say the quiet part out loud. It's my opinion that it is a misnomer to state that Section 523A8 protects the worthiness of the federal government 
directly or indirectly to be paid back. But it instead it serves the financial services industry with the help of its lobbyists and members of Congress who carry their water that Congress has allowed this version of what I call sharecropping to evolve to our great nation's detriment. And it has been grafted on to the student loans seeking a post-high school education. This form of education sharecropping, uh, where you never actually own your own education, but rent it, and you can never discharge it in bankruptcy, is very bad public policy indeed. It impacts our students' ability to raise families and contribute to our long-term economic viability. So, when we get back the next next time, all is not lost. I'll share with you all three ways we may be able to deal with our student loan debt inside and outside of bankruptcy court. But as always in closing here at Selwyn's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including the laws of bankruptcy and their positive effects on our economy when guided by equity and fairness, not only to the debtor, but to the creditor and to our society as a whole. So... Have a wonderful Christmas, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.